All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today, we're going to be talking with Avram Miller of Intel. Avram is going to be able to give us some wonderful insight on, well, uh, a whole bunch of things, actually, because firstly, Avram is a bit of a computing pioneer going all the way back to the 60s. And so in tracing Avram's career, we'll be able to see how computing has evolved into the modern era. But Avram is also one of the first people we've spoken to who can give us some background on venture capital as an industry, because Avram was the co-founder of Intel Capital, and during the 1990s, racked up one of the biggest venture fund successes probably of all time, backing such companies we've already spoken about, like Broadcast.com, GeoCities, CNET, and more. But crucially, I think, Avram and Intel were also there at the very dawn of the residential broadband era. Just this week, we heard in the news how Comcast, for the first time, has more internet subscribers than TV subscribers. Well, Avram was key in, as he puts it, convincing the cable industry that they weren't just in the entertainment business, but could really be in the communications and technology business. There's so many topics that we cover in this conversation that we're a bit all over the place, but it's a wide-ranging and fascinating episode that I know you're absolutely going to love. Avram Miller, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. It's my pleasure. Uh, so we start at the very beginning. Um, you were uh, born and, and brought up in San Francisco? That's right. Uh, and my family came to San Francisco around 1900, so we were there a long time. Wow. Most people in San Francisco weren't born there, let alone having four generations. Right, right. Um, but the, usually then I jump into uh, to college and degrees and things like that. But with you, we have to say, I think you like to say that, that you went to school at the College of Avramu, is that right? Well, I, I like to joke about it, but basically I... Um, the only reason I graduated high school was because I went to a private school and I tested out. 
And then uh, I never went to university, but I did study music. And uh, but no, I didn't. I didn't even think about going to university. I, I became a merchant seaman. Right. How many years did you do that? Oh, less than a year. You know, I was 18. It was, seemed like a great way to see the world. I was fortunate enough to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And there I was in 1963. I'm 70 years old now, 1963, visiting Japan, which was a developing country at the time. Uh, Hong Kong, where people were sleeping on mattresses. Uh, and in uh, the Philippines, where I got shot. So yeah, <laughs> it was a good way to start. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, from what I've been able to gather about about your bio, you you had eclectic interests. That uh, I think you you were thinking about being a poet, maybe a musician, maybe a, a rabbi, um, but you decided ultimately on on being a scientist. What, how, explain no. explain that evolution. No, I, I wouldn't say. Uh, I I think I think about doing all those things now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, they've just all those things are to some extent. I, uh, you know, play a role in my life, but you know the emphasis changed. I loved science from the time I was a child. Um, I was really informed by a Saturday morning science program. I think it was ten o'clock in the morning that I could hear. I first started hearing it on a, a crystal radio set I built, <laughs> and it was my only access to information about science at the time. Uh, later, I started going to the library. I mean, it was a different world. I wish I could be born into this world and have access to the Internet, but I didn't have it, so it was much harder to, to learn things. So I was always interested in science, in physics, chemistry, and uh, even biology. Uh, and so it, it, it wasn't that I decided to do anything. You know? <laughs> yeah, my life didn't happen that way until I, maybe I got older, I decided some things, but mostly I just drifted through life. So you you stumbled into something, yeah. um, and uh, you stumbled into something that that led you to your first um, experience with computers. So why don't why don't you tell me that story? Well, uh, yeah, I think it, it's it was 1966, and I was trying to think about what I wanted to do, and I actually thought uh, about becoming a rabbi because I had long hair and a beard and it seemed like that, uh, the only th- that was the only job that was available to me. But uh, I, I decided not to do that and I looked around for work and I asked all my uh, friends and somebody said to me, do you know anything about electronics? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, it's a hobby. I know something about it. So there was a, a scientist at, at Langley Porter Institution, University of California in San Francisco, Joe Camilla, who was doing some work and was looking for somebody to help him in the lab set up some electronic devices. Uh, so he introduced me to Joe, and Joe is one of my great mentors. I, I owe so much to him. And he asked me, he told me what he was trying to do and said, do you think you can do it? And I said, let me try, and if I do it, will you give me a job? And so he said yes, and I did it. So I got some things working for him. Uh, Joe was the first person to do... Uh, research into biofeedback, uh, brainwave biofeedback. And uh, I joined his lab and we taught people to control their brainwaves. Uh, this was, 19, again, 1966. I was there from 66, the end of 66 to six, beginning of 69. Was some, some of this research was looking at 
the brain waves of, of like Zen monks and, and things like that? Yeah. So Joe was interested in seeing if he could, if there was any difference in the brain waves of Zen monks who were meditating. And he supposed there would be, and there was. And then the question was, if you taught people with biofeedback to have the same kind of brainwave configuration, would they report similar subjective experience? And uh, that was the task. And I would say the answer was yes. So, you know, you're doing things, you're imagining things, you're meditating, whatever you're doing, you know, we, your brain is manifesting that in uh, various uh, waves. Our understanding of these waves, even now, is pretty primitive. Then it was very primitive. But if you could, we don't know uh, what our brain waves are right now. You might have a sense of what your heart's doing if you put your hand on your heart. Mm -hmm. But you can't put your hand on your head and know what your brain's doing. So the only thing you have is maybe some subjective feeling about what's going on in your brain. So our uh, objective was to give, uh, was to get, you know, concrete feedback about what was going on in the brain by mo monitoring brain wave frequencies and then turning them into something. So I built equipment that would turn them into sound so you could hear what your brain was doing. Hmm. And then if there was a certain sound, that, let's say, was related to alpha waves, which uh, are the kinds of waves you would have more of if you were meditating, then you would start to think about, well, when, is I, when do I hear that sound? What am I doing? What helps me make that happen? And you would learn to basically program yourself. So I'm a tremendous believer in biofeedback and it's interesting to me today and these days because we have all these devices wearable devices that are trying to give us feedback and uh i don't think they do such a good job but anyway eventually we'll get this and so if you can give people feedback uh they can fix it so like i uh um uh, was uh, using for a while something called lomo back which was a device uh, that i put on my uh around my back and will give me feedback about my posture because most of the time we don't know, you know, we we can see it if we looked at it, but we but we're not getting good feedback. Anyway, that was we take all our time up on this, but right. uh, that was a great thing because for me it was a great thing because Joe Camilla was my mentor, he was my teacher, and he taught me. He taught me so many things. He taught me the scientific method. He taught me signal processing and signal analysis. He taught me uh, statistics. Uh, and, um, you know, it was wonderful. Uh, well, and, and Langley Porter had a, a PDP-7 there, right? Uh, yes. So the Langley Porter had a research group. We were all on the third floor, I think. You know, we had real, the real patients there in Langley Porter that were being treated for psychiatric disorders. But we, we didn't have anything to do with them. We were on our floor. And there were a number of different scientists on that floor studying different things. Uh, Joe, as I mentioned, was studying uh, biofeedback. And there was, for the whole group, a PDP-7, which was from Digital Equipment Corporation. Uh, and uh, it wasn't there when I first started. It came later. And uh, 
that was the first time I ever, I didn't even know what a computer was. I mean, I had no idea. I didn't know what, I mean, I knew there were computers because, you know, every time we had uh, elections, you know, they would talk about what the computer was predicting, you know. But, and I had seen, you know, computer rooms and movies by that time and so on, but I didn't really think much about computers. Most people didn't interact with them in any way. Uh, but we had this computer come in and I uh, knew about digital logic. By that time, I had learned how to build logic. I could do, in fact, I learned everything. I mean, I could build amplifier, microvolt amplifiers. Uh, I could do analog circuitry. I could do digital circuitry. I taught myself symbolic logic and digital logic, and I could program digital logic devices. But I didn't, it was, I programmed it by connecting them. And I had like a patch panel. If, like if you remember how, you know, operators and way back used to connect phone calls. It was plugging in plugs and things. Yeah, yeah. I had something like that, and that my program was on those things, and I could change those things, and I could connect things up. So I knew about a lot about how the digital logic worked, and I was amazed uh, when this computer came in and everybody left to go home. I stayed and I opened up the back of it and I realized that it was made out of the same modules I was using because I had gotten, my equipment came from Digital Equipment Corporation, where I later worked, and this computer was from Digital Equipment Corporation, and it was made out of the same elements. So that was great. I opened it up and I looked around looking for the patch panel. <laughs> you know, I didn't know about both. It took me to about three o'clock in the morning to realize the concept of the stored program and the use of memory to store a program. Uh, and it was probably, I would still say, the most impactful moment in, in my life. I mean, like all the circuits blew out of my brain. It was such a powerful concept that you could have a program, you could change the program, and that the program actually could even change itself. So I taught myself to program by 7 o'clock in the morning. I was a programmer. <laughs> you know what? Maybe for context, we, we should specify. How, how big was this? this was this a room-sized machine? The PDP-7 uh, was, in the, was nothing like, you know, the 360 or whatever, you know, IBM machines. But it still had to be in a, uh, in a room that was air-conditioned and it had, uh, you know, several what we call bays that were about six feet tall uh, and, you know, racks of stuff. We probably had about five or six of them. Uh, it was very primitive. It didn't have, it, it, when you turned it on, it had no memory at all. I would have to put in what was called the bootstrap loader, the rim loader. I would have to put it in by the switches. There were about, I think, 14 or 15 instructions, which I, you know, learned to memorize, and I put them in. And all they knew how to do was to run, uh, was to uh, input another program, which came through the teletype. And so it was on paper tape. And then slowly, it would take about at least a half an hour to get the computer to come alive. And uh, it had no uh, disk. It had no um, place to store memory other than we had a, uh, eventually we got a tape drive. But otherwise, all the programs were on punch tape. And we would have to program it, and then it would, it would create a paper tape. I, I think most of the people that are listening to your podcast, I'm sure, are a lot younger than I am. They have no idea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They have zero idea. Well, about, uh, yeah, pun punch card computing is still. Uh, uh, I'm I'm beyond that time as well. But 
Um, So, okay, I want to, I actually, not to give short shrift to things, but um, I want to get to your time at at, uh, Digital. So uh, just sort of briefly, so you spend, you spend the 60s at Langley Porter uh, doing various types of research and then, and then walk me through uh, the 70s. Okay, so by the end of uh, around 69, I decided to leave California because I, I was uh, Governor Reagan. Reagan became governor, and anyway, I, I decided it was time to get out of there. And I had an offer from a new institution in, that was being built in Rotterdam called the Thorax Center, which was focusing on uh, cardiovascular and pulmonary medicine. Uh, the guy who uh, was the, the founder of that institution, Paul Huguenols, was a Dutch man who had been living in, in Boston and had done a lot of work in MIT. And he got into his head that he really wanted to use computer technology as a fundamental ingredient in creating this center of excellence. And he had been given a lot of money by the Dutch government who was interested in having some things special happening in Rotterdam. Rotterdam still had damage from World War II. Uh, and so Paul was looking for somebody to share this vision, and through a number of different ways, he heard about me. I was still, when he first contacted me, I was still 23, but, you know, I was arguably a world expert on, on real-time signal processing. Now, I could say that wasn't such a hard thing to do because there was hardly anybody who was doing it. Uh, but I was one of the people that was doing it, and he wanted to do real-time monitoring of patients. So... Uh, people at Digital Equipment Corporation told him about me, others told him about me, and he was busy trying to recruit me. Uh, long story short, I decided to go. It, it was a little difficult because I didn't want to, I liked doing uh, neurophysiology, and now I was going to do cardiovascular medicine, but I was excited about the basically the budget that we had for computer technology. And so I was able to design the, the facilities, we had a number of computers. I had a group of about 20 or 30, well, I guess it got up to about 30 people. We did some really great uh, groundbreaking work in, uh, in this field, including patient monitoring, catheterization uh, systems, and the first echocardiography uh, systems. Uh, we're very successful. It was great. And I, again, that's where I learned to be a manager. You know, I never had employees before, or people working for me. And I ended up uh, managing a group. And actually, sadly, I stopped programming. Hmm. I loved programming. But, uh, you know, I never used my time on the computer. So eventually they took my time away from me. <laughs> I was busy, you know, managing, right? And writing papers and right. getting papers and things like that. And I became an assistant. Uh, uh, system, uh, assistant professor, professor there, and then was uh, just as I left, they made me the equivalent of an associate professor. Mm-hmm. And then um, there's several years in Israel after that, right? So I, uh, my wife, uh, my my former wife, and I, and we had two children, two sons, decided that we. Uh, wanted to leave Holland uh, primarily because we wanted to raise our ch- children as Jews, and that was just impossible in Holland. There were hardly any Jews left after the war, 
And uh, I was always pretty Zionist, and so I decided, uh, we decided together to go to Israel, and that's where we went. And there I started up a division of an American company doing computer, basically doing what I was doing, commercializing on what I was doing in Holland, making computer systems that we could sell that build on this, on the learning that I had when I was in Holland. And I also was appointed associate uh uh, adjunct associate professor at the School of Medicine in Tel Aviv. So basically you spend uh, the better part of a decade, maybe almost 15 years, uh, always with computers, so you're, you're seeing computer technology develop uh, over this time period. Right, and I was consulting for computer companies. So I think it's an important thread in this because I was making changes. I made some changes to the PDP-7 uh, IO and I, uh, which was a pure computer thing, I was, comp- I was, so I was consulting, doing some consulting work for digital. I was doing some consulting work for HP. And uh, so I had a little, actually, you know, I was making a little bit of money from doing that. Uh, and I loved computers. I mean, that was my life. So I, my life was kind of the intersection of computing and real time uh, single processing physiological signal processing. You know, that's what I was interested in. So is it is it this consulting that um, eventually leads you to uh, joining uh, Digital Equipment Corporation, you know, as a, as a regular employee? Yeah, so I, uh, I knew a lot of people at Digital Equipment Corporation. I spent a lot of time there. And in 19, uh, I guess it would have been, yeah, 69, beginning of 69, my wife and I decided that we wanted, we no longer wanted to stay in Israel. It was just too hard for us, the situation that we had. I was basically running a business which was all export. I was never in the country. And uh, there were a lot of reasons that we don't have to go into here, but we decided to leave. And then I had to make a decision about whether or not we'd go back to Europe and then I would focus on medicine or go to the United States and focus on computers. I decided I didn't want to stay in doing just both. I felt it was too narrow, too confining. And once I put that decision to, you know, I gave myself that decision to take, it was clear I could never give up computers. I loved them so much, I could give up anything but that. So then it was easy because I had such a strong relationship with people at Digital, and I told them that I wanted to join, and they invited me over. I spent a week interviewing with different groups. And I decided, although I had some opportunities in some of the business units, because by this time I was running a business. You know, I'd been running a business for five years. Uh, I decided to join Central Engineering because I was convinced that the only way to be taken seriously in that company was to prove that you were an engineer, that you were good technically. So I went to work in Central Engineering and I ended up running the hardware development for the low end you know, they had kind of central engineering kind of had developed a uh, broken engineering into two into four quadrants, big computer, small computer, software and hardware. So I was the small computer hardware quadrant. And that was P- small PDP 11s, QBus computers for those who would remember what that was. Uh, I had the terminals for a while. Uh, I had world processors, different products. And eventually, the company kind of reorganized, and I ended up running a group that was developing what 
you know, was basically a personal computer, but it was before people called them personal computers. Uh, the prof- but we ended up being in competition with IBM, their PC, and so on. Right. So this is this is the early early eighties. So the IBM yep. PC comes out and sort of uh, proves to people that there there can be a uh, a personal computer market. And so is the project that you're talking about um, the the professional series? Yes. Is that the, yes. the the machines? Okay. Yeah. And uh, we we were trying to do something different. I mean, to be uh, fair, I mean, I know everything about what happened, uh, both at digital, but also at IBM, because I hired later the key developers of the IBM PC when I went to Franklin. So I, and I knew I was friendly with uh, the IBM people. Uh, and uh, so we were go- doing a different thing. You know, we were going after the professional market. We were looking at people that were going to use these computers in the office and wanted to integrate them uh, with other computers and be on the network. And, you know, it was a very different point of view than what IBM had. IBM actually didn't even have a point of view. They just kind of had these renegades who built the system. Right, and then, right. and, they were, and, then the, and the, uh, the PC market, just like the Internet, was, was created by the users. It wasn't created by any company. Well, and, and, and you, you mentioned focusing on networking, like it, it had uh, Ethernet. Right. So I was, first of all, one of the things that I've always loved, and that will come out later, I guess, in our interview, is networking. Uh, my first network I developed in Holland when I was there. I had networked our computers. So uh, I was really into, you know, the idea of networking computers. I don't know why. I just loved it. And so uh, Intel... Xerox and Digital Equipment Corporation formed a collaboration around Ethernet. And Gordon Bell, who was the head of engineering at Digital, asked me to work uh, with that group and to incorporate Ethernet, which I was good, would have done anyway, but be part of the representative working with those other companies. And so we incorporated Ethernet and uh, and. Uh, uh, I can't think of his name, but anyway, the, the guy went on, uh, Metcalf, who was the, the developer of the Ethernet at Xerox Lab, right. going off to form 3Com, and I gave them their first order. And so we didn't build that board ourselves, we got it from them. And so we had Ethernet, we had Bitmap graphics in the professional, uh, and so all the things that later Apple was able to do in, uh, with Lisa and then later, and, and then with the uh, Mac. We were actually able to do in 1983. Uh, they did it, I guess it would have been 84, 85, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, so, but that product was very, it was not successful. And uh, part of the reason, which has been well documented, is uh, Ken Olson, who was my sponsor for doing it, decided that, you know, if one computer is good, why don't we have a couple more? And so he, he got two other groups to basically develop competing products, and that totally confused our sales force and also the software developers. Uh, and so that was one, of, you know, one of the problems. But the company really didn't, you know, digital was really good on technology and really bad at marketing. I mean, really bad. And uh, uh, and you kind of see this over and over again. You know, sometimes. Companies are really good. When I joined Intel, it was really good at on the technical side, and but really not so good at marketing. Got better, uh, 
so anyway, that failed. You, uh, you know, I uh, just to interrupt. I when when researching this, I found such a funny little stat. In, in 1982 or 83, whenever the professional series is, is released, the entire PC market was, was only a $5 billion market at that point. It was growing tremendously fast, but that's sort of mind-blowing to think about, only a $5 billion market. Yeah, well, you know, $5 billion, yeah. It, anyway, it, it, was a, it was an interesting opportunity for me because I got a lot of visibility in the company, and I got to deal with everything, you know, from manufacturing to engineering uh, and so on. I learned a, a great deal. Uh, and I learned, you know, to be, you know, a leader. I mean, I think I was a pretty good manager, but I learned to really lead because I had so many people. Eventually, you can't deal with everyone, you know. And if you're trying to get them all going in the same direction, you've got to be pretty good with, with the message. So uh, it was a it was a good experience. I wish it had worked out differently, but it was a good experience for me. Well, so because um, because you've honed these leadership chops now, um, your next step when you go to um, to uh, Franklin is Franklin Computers, which we should say was a an Apple clone company. Um, you're you're the CEO. You're the 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 head cheese at Franklin, right? Yeah. So. Uh, kind of. So, so first of all, the Franklin's thing, you know, I went to Franklin. Uh, so I decided to leave digital because I didn't think we would be successful. And, and I wanted to be in a company that was more market oriented. Uh, and so I thought about starting my own company. And I actually put together a plan to do a networking company similar to 3Com. And I got people willing to invest in me. But I didn't pull the trigger, and at the same time, then I was I was um, contacted by a, a recruiter from for Franklin. So Franklin was building an Apple II clone, and it had just started, and the company was doing really well. Uh, and they, but the people that had founded it really weren't the people to take it forward. So I was recruited and uh, asked to build the company. And I was re actually, I wasn't CEO. I was the, I wasn't a fact the CEO, but I was, my title was chief operating officer, president. Okay. And because one of the founders kept the title CEO and another founder kept the title, you know, chairman of the board, you know, those things happen. And then I, so I went in there. Well, they offered me a lot of money. I, I had, I didn't have any money, by the way, at this time, I, I had nothing, you know, I had been, an academic in Holland. I lived in Israel, which was not a place to make a lot of money in those days. Now it's different. And then I, I worked for Digital Equipment Corporation. They paid me well, but you know I, I didn't have money, uh, and uh, and so they offered me a lot of money and in stock and a very good salary. Uh, but also they offered me the chance to make my own the company in my own image. I and mean, they said you can do whatever you want. Let's get this thing out. We were gonna let's go public, raise some money, and you can create the company you want to create, and uh, you know recruit the people you want to recruit, and so on. I thought that was fantastic, so I couldn't say no. Uh, and then I I made a, a couple of mistakes myself. One was that I tried to hire the best people I could find from different com companies, so from IBM, so, so the people that did the IBM PC, from digital, from Xerox. I hired all these different people. That was a terrible mistake because they all had different cultures and they couldn't get along. And uh, and now I and you know the 
just before I left digital, Ken Olson asked me, he says, I just have one request. Please don't take our people. And stupidly, I said, okay, I won't. There's only two people that I want to take because I told them before they were going to leave. I told them before I take them. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, I'm not taking a person. That was really dumb. Now I understand why people raid their former employers, because you understand how the culture works. So that was a problem. And not, that wasn't the problem that, that killed Franklin. The problem that killed Franklin was that it had a lawsuit with Apple. And when I had joined, the Apple had lost the suit. Uh, but it was out on appeal. And the company's lawyers, everybody told me, don't worry, this is just a, uh, you know, an administrative thing. There's no way they're going to win this appeal. And, uh, and our, we started doing an, uh, an IPO. We were going to raise a lot of money. We were growing faster than, than Compaq. Right, and, and Compaq and lots of other people would find tremendous success being clone companies of, of the PC. Right, yeah. They just didn't have Steve Jobs on them, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, uh, we would have been actually good for Apple. You know, uh, Scully was the CEO at the time, you know, and we said, look, why don't, we, why don't we stop fighting with each other? We can work together. We'll give you a license fee so you'll get some profit from what we do. We'll, you know, and we'll be complimentary and more people will develop software. But uh, Steve would, Jobs would not hear of it. So... Uh, what happened is that the appellate court ruled uh, against the lower court, not in matters of fact, but matters of law. That is, they, there were many uh, reasons that the court had rejected Apple's suit, and I think it was something like eight or nine. And one of them was that you can't copyright uh, the BIOS or the ROM quote code in the computer. And the appellate court said, no, I, I don't agree with that. You can't copyright that. I don't want that to stand. Therefore, you have to go back and rehear the case. Had we not asked, uh, said that, if the lawyers had not said that, we probably would have prevailed. And so what happens is everybody thinks that we lost the case, that we lost to Apple. No, we just had to go back and rehear the case. But because people thought that we couldn't go public, our the bank wanted, you know, we were borrowing money, the bank wanted, you know, their loans back. It, 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 it became awful. It was like, uh, I describe it as driving a 90 miles an hour down a freeway with no brakes and no gas. And uh, it, it just was awful. So we had to get into survival mode. We had no cash. And you can imagine growing at that rate, we had a lot of cash needs because we were building up inventory. So I had to start selling off inventory cheaper than we bought it. We started having losses where we had been profitable. We had we did eighty million dollars in our first year, but now we're going the other direction, and uh, and then uh, Jim Simons, who is a very famous man now, he's one of the big hedge fund guys. You know these guys who make a couple billion dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Jim was uh, one of our main investors, and I think the chairman of the board, and. Uh, an amazing guy that I still in contact with, but he and I went out to dinner and, and uh, basically agreed that I wasn't the right person to stay there because I didn't know how to deal with the situation. You know, this was, uh, you know, I had no skills in how do you deal when you're running out of money and you have to fire this person and tell this person you're not going to pay them and renegotiate this deal. And I didn't want to do it. You know, so uh, we all stayed friends, but I left. 
And that was the first time I had failed at anything, really failed. And the digital equipment, you know, the pro wasn't such, my mind wasn't really that kind of failure. But this was, uh, this was pretty a failure personally because I had moved my family. Uh, they were happy in Boston. I moved them to Philadelphia. And now I was, now I was probably going to have to move them again. It was really awful. So this is what brings us uh, finally to Intel. Uh, I believe in 1984. How how did um, how did you end up at Intel? Were you recruited? Yes, it was kind of weird. So there I am uh, leaving Franklin. I have no job. I also have no money because I've been given a lot of money, but it was all in stock in Franklin. It was now worthless. Uh, fortunately, they paid the tax bill, and uh, I'm consulting and looking around for work and you know, trying to figure out what I want to do. Uh, when I got contacted by someone at Intel and saying that, you know, would I be interested in talking with Intel? It was a recruiter, it was an employee. Would I be interested in talking to one of the senior people at Intel? They're, because they're looking for somebody like you. They're looking for somebody that really understands the computer business. And uh, I thought, Intel? That doesn't make any sense. That's a I mean, I knew Intel. I used their chips, but a chip company that's mostly doing memories. Right. They, that, weren't, they weren't in processors at that point, right? Well, they had microprocessors, but and I used some of them. But they were basically, you know, I you joke about it. They were selling silicon by the ton uh, in those days, you know, and it was memory business. What, what did I do with them? And so I was uh, talking to various computer companies on the West Coast. And one of them, Convergent Technologies, I think it was, invited me out for an interview. Uh, and so I said to this person at Intel, I said, you know what? I'm coming out anyway. Why not? But the only time I have is Saturday morning. <laughs> you know, that was how interested I was. <laughs> and uh, Les Fidesz, who became my boss and was always my boss and, and, thank, and thankfully is now my friend, and will always be my friend. Uh, he was number three at Intel. He had, you know, they all started the same day, about 10 of them or whatever, but he had badge number three. Andy Grobel had badge number four. Les uh, was, at that point, the head of what was called the strategic staff. And he had a, a variety of responsibilities, but one of them was kind of strategic planning. And uh, he was looking for somebody that understood the computer business. At that point, nobody in the senior management of Intel even knew how the computer worked. They, they were chemists. They were physicists. And they just didn't know anything about computer architecture. Of course, there were people in the company that did, but not at a senior level. And so, uh, so we talked, I, you know, uh, and I spent three days I think interviewing. Uh, oh no, I talked to Les. Uh, sorry, and then he invited me back. And then I uh, asked to see the strategic long-range plan of Intel, which they let me see in a non-disclosure agreement in a in a room. I couldn't take it out. And on the first play page, it said, "Change is our ally." And I, I, wow, I like that. And then I talked to a lot of people, and they were uh, really smart. And I was interviewed by Gordon Moore, who was the CEO, and Andy Grove, who was the COO. And, uh, and I thought, you know, I can help these people if they want to get in the computer business. 
And they can help me because they seem to be really competent. And I was tired of incompetence. Uh, and I thought, these people are really smart and they're really competent, but they don't know how to do what I know how to do. Uh, and so I, I said, okay, let's do it. And, uh, oh, and I said, what's my job? And, they, and the answer was, whatever you want it to be. Hmm. Where do you want me to live? Any place we have a facility. So there I was on my own. <laughs> and I, I mean, I was given a big salary and I was given a good title and I was given no responsibilities. So they, they didn't even have a remit for you. They just knew they wanted you. They wanted to hire. It was called a strategic hire. And Les had negotiated that he could bring in somebody, you know, a person like me into the company every year because they were the company because it's so you know because of the amount of manufacturing in a company like Intel and engineering it's very much a very narrow pyramid there very there were very few people in you know management of the company at that time and uh, so uh, they needed to add people to the company they always needed to they didn't do a very good job I was the only one to tell you the truth I was the only one that in the whole time I was there that they could bring in successfully from the outside that stayed. Everybody else that came in left. It was a very harsh environment. And uh, it was, you know, people there didn't, didn't give a damn about what you did before you got there. It's only what you did there. And they didn't care what you knew or what. I mean, they're very harsh. Uh, and, you know, God knows how I survived. I think I only survived because I just couldn't move my family again. So I had a I had to suck it in, take it. <laughs> so what did you what did you end up doing those first couple years? I um, so Intel had a uh, group they called the Systems Group, and it was focused on various things. It was doing boards, computer boards. It was doing the development systems that people would buy when they wanted to program or you know work with microprocessors, uh, and it was. Um, and then it, there was a joint venture with Siemens, which was focused called Gemini, which was focused on building a object-oriented 33-bit computer to take on Tandem, which was the major high reliability computer at the time. Uh, and so when I found out that they had a systems group, and whatever, I mean, it, it made sense for me to be uh, related to them. And so I had uh, I became part of the staff, you know, I had like, I, even though I worked for less, I sat at the staff meetings of the guy that ran the systems group and, uh, you know, basically did a whole bunch of different tasks with them and try to introduce them to different concepts and show them things. It's not very interesting, to tell you the truth. And then uh, they had this joint uh, venture with Siemens and, it, and I thought it was going to be a real mess the way it was going, and I, I reluctantly volunteered to be the business person. Mm -hmm. So I went into that group for about three years, I think, and they were also developing a new chip as part of that, the high reliability chip, and I became responsible for that business inside Intel, and I became involved in this what became a joint venture, which I had negotiated with Siemens, and we created a company called Bind, B-I-I-N. And, uh, and then uh, once we created the company, they decided to go out and look for a, uh, somebody to be the CEO. They hired a guy from Sperry, uh, Sperry 
uh, Joe Kruger and uh, brought in all these people. It was like, it was crazy. It was stupid because it, it was just, it was nothing to do with Intel, really. Intel was just basically providing the, the chips. Uh, thankfully, I wasn't asked to be the CEO. I would have turned it down, but I wasn't asked. And I had done, I think, a pretty good job of managing the situation. I hadn't created the situation, but managing it. And uh, I was told that I could you know, decide next what I would want to do. Um, and I said, okay, I want to do mergers and acquisitions. I didn't say I want to do venture capital. I didn't really know much about it. I want to do mergers and acquisitions. I want to uh, help grow the company that way. And I want to move to Santa Clara because I want to be close to where the action is. And so I, uh, I was moved. Uh, I moved there and worked for less and, and uh, started doing mergers and acquisitions. Uh, but soon we did some. I started realizing they weren't going to be very useful because the immune system was so strong in Intel that it would reject the foreign bodies, you know, and so it was this problem of not being able to, you know, you bring in a, buy a company is run by some entrepreneur who is really very smart, knows what he's doing, but he's treated like he doesn't know anything once he gets inside the company. And that's when I formulated the idea of doing venture capital instead. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. So, yeah. so what you're saying is, is that uh, Intel as a culture was not very good at absorbing other companies. So you, what you resolved to do instead is to do what? Uh, stage investments, like uh, minority investments, instead yeah. of trying to absorb companies and do M&A and stuff like that. Right. So I was convinced that the company needed to expand its horizons. You know, you heard me make a joke a little while ago that when I first joined, Intel was selling silicon by the ton. Because it was in the memory business, right? And then I was, I, and then it moved, and, and uh, Les was very involved in that. Moved into the processor business, and Intel took the decision to get out of the memory business—a very brave decision—and uh, fired a bunch of people and focused on the microprocessor. But just at the right moment, because the PC started taking off, uh, and I said, you know, Intel found got out of the strip mining business because it found a vein of gold. Now it's in the gold mining business. And but it only had one business that was any good, and that was the PC business and the microprocessor. And I felt like every vein of gold eventually you're going to extract it all. And when you do, right. you're, left, you're just left in a big hole. And that's what happened to Intel, actually. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to. My mission was to 
get us out of that. And, and I, you know, have said, you know, I always say to people, I was not a venture capitalist. I've never identified being a venture capitalist. I was an activist strategist. I wanted uh, to have a strategy and I wanted to be able to act on the strategy. And the only way I could act on the strategy in Intel was to act through other companies. And so by investing in these companies, uh, we could learn things, but we could influence them and we could expand the market. And uh, it's a long story about Intel Capital. And I think it's been pretty well documented in the interview, my oral history at the Computer Museum. But because of the process we developed and how we went about doing it and why we became so successful, maybe the most, arguably the most successful corporate venture fund or maybe and one of the most venture, successful venture funds ever. Well, uh, let, let's do go into this just a little bit because, again, it, it does come back to something you said earlier. A lot of what you wanted to invest in was, was networking and also the consumer side of it, which um, – I think I think I heard you say that uh, Andy Grove told you that he didn't even think that there was a consumer side for for Intel's business at all, right? Yeah. Well, what happened there was uh, okay. Truth be known, when I first got to Intel, I thought when I thought about joining Intel, I wanted to see if I could get Intel into the consumer business. I was always fascinated by it, and one of my very close friends, Steve Mayer, was a co-founder of Atari. And I used to hang out at Atari and see how they developed their products and so on. And actually uh, was offered a job to go to Atari, uh, a job that, you know, to be the CTO of Atari. I didn't take it, thank God. Uh, but uh, so I had this little con interest in consumer stuff. And, uh, it, and then when I got there, I realized that wasn't going to happen because of things that Intel was doing at the time. But in 19, uh, would have been seven, uh, about this, yeah, 2000, I got a sabbatical. Intel had a sabbatical program. Every seven years, after seven years, you got a year. You got not a year off, but you got about six or seven weeks. And if you combined it with your vacation time and whatever, you could get, you know, a couple months, two or three months. And I took a sabbatical. Uh, and then I came back and I decided that I wanted to focus on the consumer market. And I told Andy Grove and Les that I wanted to do that. And Andy said, there is no consumer market and uh, for this. You know, that's a waste of time. And I said, I really think that there, uh, there is. And, you know, to Andy's credit, he said, look, if you want to waste your time on this, go ahead. Uh, you know, but I don't want you to use anybody else. Don't take anybody's resources. Don't do anything. You can just waste your time. <laughs> and then there was a meeting of about 200 senior executives soon after. And Andy was talking about a lot of things. He says, by the way, Avram wants to go after the consumer market. He is a waste of time. But I told him he could waste his time. But nobody else can waste their time. You know, there's no market. So I decided that every, I think it was every Tuesday at 12 o'clock, I would eat lunch in a certain conference room. And I told people, you know, I'm sitting in this conference room having lunch and I'm thinking about the consumer market. And pretty soon people would end up in that room. And pretty soon I had to get a bigger conference room, you know. So, uh, and it turned out to be important because we did launch the Pentium into the consumer market. And maybe because of that, people were thinking more about the consumer market than they would have. Uh, 
but I had no business unit. I had nothing I could do other than to start investing in companies. And I didn't start, you know, I was investing in companies by that time. Uh, you know, I did invest in networking companies, but uh, more on the business side. And uh, I was investing in a lot of different things. Uh, but that's when I started uh, investing. The Internet was just starting to take off. I was probably the only, for a while, I was one of the few executives that maybe the only one who had access to the Internet because the only way to go on the Internet and Intel was through the engineering web uh, um, site. And, uh, and the engineers, I used to hang out with them. They made me an honorary engineer so they, I could get in on the engineering uh, uh, computer network and get out into the Internet. Uh, and so I started playing around with Mosaic when it first came out and so on. So the whole thing, though, with the consumer market really changed a lot at Intel when Bill Gates called up Andy Grove and said, hey, Andy, uh, you know, we are interested in doing something in the consumer market and we can't get anybody's attention at Intel. It seems like you guys are not interested in the consumer market. So I assume you wouldn't mind if we worked with AMD, which was Intel's arch competitor. Right. I assume you don't mind if we work with AMD on this. Now, Bill, of course, knew that Andy would mind. This was way. This was Bill's subtle way of getting Andy's attention. And Andy then said, "What do you mean, Bill? Of course, we're interested in the consumer market. One of our senior guys, a vice president, Avram Miller, is working full time on the consumer market." And Bill, Bill knew who I was. Bill said, oh, I didn't know that. Abramo, send them up. You know, let's have a meeting. And uh, actually, I think Andy even came to this meeting. And uh, so we had this meeting, and there was uh, Andy and Bill and a number of other people. I think Steve Ballmer was there at the time. Um, and on the end, there were a number of people on the Intel side. Uh, and my counterpart... Uh, uh, was there? Oh God! This is what I was always afraid Rob, of. Rob Glazer. Yeah, God, I always forget. I never forget people's names when, except when I'm in an interview or whatever. Yeah, Rob Glazer was there, and Rob had, was running a group to do consumer products, and there were a number of them. There was something like, uh, you know, the i would have been like an iPad, uh, like like an iPod Touch or something kind of. Uh, forget the uh, what was the product that the uh, Newtons, more of the Newton style. Yeah, like a Newton. Yeah, uh, they wanted to do. There was a game console they wanted to do, and then and most importantly to you, everybody, especially me, but also all of your listeners, there was a set top box, and the set top box they wanted to develop something on top of the set top box. Uh, set top. Remember, we had set tops. Now, if you try to put something on top of a your flat screen display, it would fall off. There's no surface, but we had a, a top. And Bill said, I'll remember, I'll never forget, Bill said, this is the most important real estate in the world, the top of this TV, and we've got to have something there. And so, when it, so we decided we would explore these three projects, and I would lead the effort from Intel and Rob would lead the effort for Microsoft. Can I interrupt for a second? Because um, listeners to the show will know that I've gone down this road before about how right 
when the internet takes off, or the web, I should say, in about 94, 95, a lot of the big players, like specifically Bill Gates, but you know others like uh, um, at Time, and, and yeah. we're, we're all obsessed with this idea of um, that maybe the TV was the thing. I, in a way, I almost get a sense that they never felt like computers could be fully mainstream. But, you know, for, for baby boomers, people born in the 50s or whatever, they always felt that, like, the TV was the sin qua non. Like, that's how they were going to truly penetrate right. mainstream and, users. Right. And there's a good reason for that because we you're talking about a period of time when game machines were going nuts. Nintendo right. and so on. So there was – the game industry was really large. and Even the content was very large. And so there was some evidence, but it was a very small uh, demographic. But they had ideas about shopping and home shopping and all these different things, and they were, and and it was really driven uh, by. Then Time Warner came along with the uh, with their project, which I wish I could remember the name of, but it was you know they put out a big RFP, a request for proposals for a uh, computing system uh, focused around the home and the TV, and. Uh, and a lot of companies then started uh, making proposals for this, uh, including General Instruments. I'm uh, sorry, uh, not General Instruments, but uh, uh, where Clark was. Uh, oh, God, why can't they name of it? Uh, it occurred to me in a moment. But anyway, uh, so, the, so, there were, so uh, Bill wanted to put in a proposal in, uh, in the space. I don't think we ever did. And uh, but he was got in his head that uh, Silicon Graphics is the company I wanted to mention. Okay, and it's the reason is also connected here is because uh, Jim Clark was still at Silicon Graphics, the one the person went off and formed Netscape, Netscape. right? Uh, and uh, but we just but we decided to work on this. I mean, basically, Andy said, "Do anything." Andy said, "Do anything that Bill wants you to do." Just keep them away from AMD. So, uh, and so we started working on these projects, and we had little groups. I put together different groups inside Intel to work with different people inside of Microsoft. Uh, at some point, uh, Rob Glazer decides to leave. He wasn't the most popular guy there, actually, and he goes to form Real Networks. Uh, and Craig Mundy, who was working for Nathan Maribel in the research group, and I knew him as well, he was moved into being my main interface. So I worked with Craig and his people. Uh, and they introduced us to a company called General Instruments. Now, this is where it gets really funny because General Instruments was run by uh, the former Secretary of Defense, Name. I also forget. Uh, Donald Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah, Donald. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Donald, uh, Donald. What was his name? Rumsfeld. Yeah. Yeah. Shit. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> no problem. By the way, and also the Time Warner experiment was the full service network. Yeah, the full service network. Yes. Yeah. So Rumsfeld, you know, is running that company, and they were a conglomerate. They had bought a or. They bought a bunch of different companies, and one of them was Gerald. And Gerald was the largest manufacturer of set-top boxes. So, but the chief technical officer 
of uh, of uh, GI was a game a guy named is it uh, his name was or his name his name is Matt Miller not related to me uh, and Matt had also research group and so they were doing more of the advanced things and we started to work with them about building the box and the box we were building we inside Intel the name was Pandora's box <laughs> but. We started working on this box and building this box for the 386, and we had a whole group working on this box. And as we started working on it, a couple of important things happened. One was that I got a chance to really understand how the cable network worked. I didn't know anything about it. You know, you just watch TV. I didn't know how it really worked. Mm -hmm. And I learned, being kind of the techie that I am, I got really into the nuts and bolts of how the network worked. It was really interesting to me. The second thing was that we learned about the, the plans for digital television, which, uh, and at the same time, there was HDTV was going on, and we had not set up our standards, but uh, GI had been developing chips for a digital uh, implementation of HDTV, which would also allow for more capacity. And it was really being driven uh, by a lot, by a desire to get more capacity because many of the cable plants were very poor uh, in quality, and it was very expensive to upgrade them to get more capacity. Mm -hmm. And John Malone, who then started talking about the fire, he was the guy who ran uh, TCI, uh, played you know major role. He was right. kind of the leader of the of the cable industry. John started talking about the 500-channel universe because he realized that with digital uh, compression, they could get a lot more channels. So that was part, that had to be part of our set-top. So I'm, I'm learning about how these chips work. And the other thing I'm learning about, you know, this, how the cable industry works. And finally, I'm learning that there's no way in the world we could build a box cheap enough. Mm. And that all the stuff that's going on, Time Warner and all the rest, is just craziness. You know, it doesn't make any sense in terms of business. And this is never going to happen. Okay. Uh, but I'm trying to keep Bill Gates, you know, happy. And uh, but one day, Matt Miller and I are talking by ourselves, and we both looked at each other and said, "This is never going to happen. This is impossible." Uh, uh, and uh, I said, "You know, nobody's going to pay for what you really need." You know, because you really need a computer. And then either Matt figured it out or I figured it out. We can't remember which one of us said, well, wait a second. Why don't we just use the computers that people are already buying? And then we decided, okay, uh, because we knew the chips, how the chips work, and we knew the chips that were being developed were packet-based. And we, could, we knew enough to be able to realize that we could create a transport system for Ethernet. You know, basically Ethernet. Right. And like Ethernet, and we could use the higher level protocols. And we said, let's do it, but let's not tell Microsoft. <laughs> so we never told Microsoft. And so we have a secret project from Microsoft going on to build these cable modems. And, uh, and they're being done in uh, Phoenix, at the, partly at the lab, because we have a group of people in Phoenix, Intel, and they have the research labs in Phoenix. And so we hide out these people and we're building the cable modems. And then we're doing the software protocols up in our our uh, our advanced labs in um, in Oregon, Portland. 
So Microsoft has no idea about this. And we don't kill the other project. We just keep doing it. And uh, I didn't want Microsoft to get involved in this because, you know, Microsoft was always dominating the relationship with Intel. And, uh, you know, I used to say that, you know, uh, Intel was Microsoft's bitch until it became Apple's bitch. But, you know, that's probably... <laughs> uh, and so... Uh, you know, I just, and I, you know, I, I was now part of the team that met with Apple, Microsoft every quarter. I was part of the, we had a small management group that met every quarter and I was, because now I'm doing the consumer stuff. I was part of that group and so, I didn't. So when you're meeting with them, you're, you're talking to them about the set top box, but in all the while, this other development of cable modems is going on in the background. Yeah. Various projects we're talking about. Yeah. Until we then go and decide to do a trial and we did a trial with, with um, Comcast, and uh, I had been developing a relationship with Comcast for a while, and uh, uh, and then we uh, also Viacom, who at that time had a small cable plant out in the Bay Area, and so we start doing a trial, and uh, it you know the trial was going pretty well. Bill found out and called me on the carpet. He's screaming at me uh, because. He said, you ruined everything because they had a plan that Nathan Murbaugh came up with to use. Uh, it was called ATM. Uh, it was a not like the uh, money machine, but it was a, a, a transport system that the phone companies, they, had, they were doing something much more phone company oriented. And they thought they, that would be really high class and really great. And they never thought the cable system would be any good. And, you know, why are you, you know, creating these, these working with these people? And, and, you know, anyway, so Bill and I, you know, he yelled at me. I yelled at him. That wasn't the first time. Uh, and, uh, but we went on and started working for all the cable companies. Just uh, a couple of questions that I have to interject here real quick. So um, is this, this is the point where, where you're developing things like Doxis and, and things like that? Right. right. So Doxis, which became the protocol that was started uh, by uh, by an Intel person did that first version of that and uh, and then we at some point we transferred all the IP to the cable labs mm -hmm. so you, you gave that to them yes and we also so we were what we were designing was the cable modem we also designed the servers because you had to create you know something that would talk to the cable modems and then get onto the internet so you had to be on both sides of the wire mm -hmm. so we did all that stuff and then we went out and uh, we basically licensed everybody because we just we decided we didn't want to be, you know, a cable motor manufacturer and keep that for ourselves. We wanted to get, uh, uh, we, so we just wanted this to happen, you know. And by that time, I came to the conclusion and I had gotten buy off on this in terms of strategy that the most important thing that we could do for the company was grow the market for personal computers. So I, my mission wasn't to help anyone business or whatever. My mission was to make investments that would grow the, the market for personal computers. We had 85% of the market. So it didn't matter if it grew for, for AMD also. And uh, so anything that would get people buying more computers, that was cool. And buying computers that needed more power and wanting to upgrade. So, that, so my whole investment strategy was focused on that. So um, did you also run tests with, um, you know, the, the AOLs and prodigies of the world, or were you only going with, like, the cable companies? 
No, no. We worked with, well, the, they, you, we had to work with cable companies. They had the plant. Right. We did have software from AOL, uh-huh. from Prodigy, and we had uh, Quicken, and we had a lot of people. Now, the first software that we had to put on was really all it was is that we basically had a carousel and we would download the C would be the equivalent of a CD quickly. So like uh, a, a music jukebox service. Yeah, well, kind of. Yeah, uh, because there wasn't any because most of these things like Quicken wasn't online or anything. Uh, AOL was and Prodigy and I uh, had to convince you know uh, uh, Steve Case to move to the internet. That was an interesting story, and uh, uh, but. We had a, yeah, a whole bunch of software. Uh, we had a whole group working with software people, but those were existing software people. In the meantime, we're investing in the infrastructure. So we're, you know, we make a model and we're thinking about how is this all going to evolve? Well, if this is a new medium. It's a new medium for everything, for communication, for education, for commerce, for information. Uh, and so what do we need? What do, and so like, for instance, in commerce, I started thinking about you know security, and that's why we made a, 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 an investment in VeriSign when it first got formed. And so I, you know, I kind of like developed with my people. It's not just with me. You know, I had a lot of people working with me. We developed an architecture. What are all the things that we need to have happen, and how do we make them happen? And what's the sequence of things that we need to do? So we invested in you know some content. So uh, you know, the late Dave Goldberg, that wonderful man that just died. You know, had a company called Launch Media, which I got introduced to, and I told, and he was doing CD, uh, enhanced CDs, and I uh, put our, we put money into his company with the uh, requirement that he moved to the internet. He he didn't even know what the internet was, but he did. It was, and uh, you know, we invested in Mark Cuban's company. You know, I always joke that it was like Shark Tank, except he was on the stage and I was sitting there. Uh, so he, he was, he was, you, you were the shark and he was in your tank. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're investing in hardware companies like, you know, like, uh, uh, Broadcom, mm-hmm. you know, we, and so, and it was very, you know, I have to say it was considerate and thoughtful thought out. It wasn't random, you know, and the, and the results proved that, that because we, we did very well. Well, let me let me take some of these uh, piece by piece. So, an obvious content investment would have been the investment in CNET, right? Yeah. And so, CNET would be literally one of the earliest content plays that eventually is one of the earliest plays to move towards advertising as as a uh, a business model. Right. Um, right. Advertising was just starting to happen, and uh, you know, one of the the uh, Quotes that I am most proud of is I think I said this at the uh, National uh, Bro- uh, National Association of Broadcasters uh, that advertising was the killer app of the internet, uh, and so advertising started happening, and you know we you know we saw that and we supported that. And uh, so then I guess, you know, you would look at something like broadcast.com and the obvious play there is is moving uh, radio and, and especially video content onto the web. So, again, that's a content play. Yeah, well, there were lots of content plays. Uh, and we, I think, I think it was 95 or 96, I can't remember now, we set up a, uh, 
uh, you know, kind of a, like a lab or whatever you want to call it, a facility at Creative Artists Agency in Los Angeles. I had people working in Los Angeles, working with content developers. Um, so we were investing in, you know, working with existing content companies. We were investing in new content companies. But we were, I, I, I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't put too much emphasis on that because, you know, it was really important to get the infrastructure in place or none of this would work. Right. I'm, I'm pointing these out because I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, from your point of view, like you said, you want to spread around and, and create all sorts of different channels that the consumer will eventually evolve into. I mean, I'm even thinking of things like GeoCities, which you guys also invest right. in. You know, that's what we would call now social networking. You know, now that we live in a Netflix world, that's sort of what, you know, broadcast.com was hinting at. So I'm, I'm trying to see from your point of view, yeah. like where you're spreading your bets around here. Yeah, well, we're entertainer that was also downloaded movies and so on. But, you know, I, I can't give you the proportion uh, without really thinking about it, you know, I could, but uh, because I don't want to just guess, but you know, so you know, that's the stuff that was visible. But we're out there investing in all kinds of infrastructure. We started also. We we didn't want to rely just on D, uh, on cable, so we we had developed ADSL, you know, the DSL technology the phone companies use. We also did that in our labs, and then we did some a number of agreements with phone companies, and then we invested in things like. Uh, uh, we invested in some independent DSL companies uh, to, uh, you know, provide broadband access to people. Uh, we, we even started doing, you know, wireless internet stuff. We were, you know, everything. I mean, it wasn't anything that we weren't trying to do. We were trying to do everything. And fortunately, we had the resources that we could do it. Um, one more uh, that I want to ask you about um before we, uh, you know, tie up how, how successful um, in, Intel Ventures was, did you guys actually invest in at-home or did you just come seed the idea for at-home? I'm curious about at-home because just for historical purposes, that's sort of a nebulous company that you kind of feel like, why didn't that work? <laughs> well, I can tell you why it didn't work. So at-home is an interesting story. So I'm going around all over the world, actually, talking to cable companies and getting them, uh, you know, to think of themselves as not not being in the TV business, but being in the communications business, you know, and uh, eventually they'll just be in the internet business, right? So I'm introducing a lot of, you know, new things and concepts to them, but also, you know, I, I understand how they're organized because a lot of them just grew by acquiring small cable companies, and they're not very good technically. And, and the idea of them managing this, you know, really concerned me. So I got in my head that the best thing to do would be to create a company that the cable companies could own that would have be staffed by technical people, internet people. And it would provide the service and it would install the right equipment in the cable plant and it would take care of everything and the cable companies would get paid by it and would also get benefit of ownership. So that was the concept that I had. And I, and, I, and I proposed to doing that, and I proposed that it would be done as a venture in which Intel would be a major investor and also General Instruments would be a major investor. Uh, that turned out to be a mistake, the General Instrument parts of it, because they didn't want to do more business with General Instrument, but they really wouldn't tell me that. And I was too 
naive or stupid to, to get to understand that was the case. Also, they weren't that focused on doing that at the moment because they really wanted to get into the phone business. And they didn't understand using Ethernet or using the uh, IP for, for telephony. They wanted to build, you know, another way to do it. So I didn't get very far with them. I got kind of frustrated. And one day I was actually at a cable meeting. So by now, I think it's probably, I don't know, maybe it's 94 or 93. Uh, we're, we're at the Western Cable Show. And, you know, we're demoing all this stuff and it's working and cable companies are doing more trials and our people are announcing cable modems. And I see John Doerr and Vinod Koshla of KP, who, you know, both of who I knew very well, having breakfast. And I joined them and I said, hey, you know, you guys are down here. You're interested in this. And they said, yeah. I said, let me tell you about an idea that I have uh, because I can't get it done. Maybe you can get it done. So that was the concept of at home. So then they got it done. And they got it done because they were smarter and shrewder than I was. They went to John Malone and they said, listen, John, why don't we put this together and you'll be an earlier investor in it. And then you convince the other guys to get in, but they'll come in at a higher amount. You know, they appealed to John Malone's greed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they got it going. So once they first got it going, I said to them, well, of course, you're going to let us invest. And they said, you're kidding. We're not going to let you invest. <laughs> and, uh, you know, KP did that many times to me. And uh, I, uh, uh, you know, have a little bit of uh, some negative, you know, some negative feelings about that. But anyway, uh, they said, you can invest in the next round. So the next time they had a round, we invested in it. But, you know, we should have owned a big piece of it. And uh, but then why did it go bad? It went bad for the same reasons it got off the ground. There was all this, you know, competition and greed amongst the cable operators and the board was just really dysfunctional. And then Will Hirsch was the president, the original president, who was a partner at KP. But he wasn't really the right guy for long term. And he knew that. And then they hired somebody from from uh, uh, Silicon Graphics that I think, you know, wasn't the appropriate person. Let me just say that. I, and, I, should I yeah. say the name or not say the name? You can say, say it. Tom, Tom Germalek? Yeah. And Tom, you know, uh, you know, I don't think was the right person. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I won't go into all the reasons why. But, and so they, so the whole thing kind of just became a total mess. And in the meantime, the cable companies were figuring out, this is going to be a great business. Why do we need something in between? We'll do it ourselves. You know, led by Comcast and Brian Roberts, who's a magnificent man, and I have the greatest respect for him and Comcast, and I'm glad that they are now the dominant force. Uh, also, at the same time, Time Warner had its own group, and they were pretty smart, technically. Uh, so Time Warner was, you know, cable was part of Time Warner, but Time Warner had, you know, some people that knew what they were doing, and they built Roadrunner. And so they, uh, so that was like competitor for, uh, for, um, for a long time, you know, Time Warner was competing. Time Warner and, and some cable companies were competing with the other. But, you know, it really was in competition because you you could only get one cable company wherever right. you went, you know. So, so let me just, uh, again, I'm going to do a little summing up just so that people, for the context for people listening. Yeah. So on a technical level, as 
cable, the cable industry in the early 90s wants to move towards digital, wants to move towards this 500-channel universe, it just so happens kind of accidentally that they've got a broadband pipe that they're feeding into everyone's house. And you discover accidentally that the software and stuff that is going to make this happen is is packet-based. Is that correct? Well, it's a little bit less accidental. Uh, so, for, uh, so they were developing digital technology, but they never deployed it. We deployed it before they did for television. Right, but what I'm trying to get a sense of is that they're not setting out to create, no. to create no, residential touch- broadband. You see it, and you start to try to say to them, hey, you guys realize you could be doing residential Internet access as well. We, we hijacked it. You know, the whole history of the computer industry is hijacking things, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the tele- modems were on phone lines, but the phone lines were developed for that. The CD wa- was not developed for the computer industry. Mm-hmm. Was developed for music. Right. The, the the monitors were not developed for the computer industry to begin with. They were right. developed, you know, for TV. So the history of the computer industry is we've been really good at hijacking things, and I was and I was pretty good at doing it. Uh, so yeah. So I, uh, you know, and the the thing that was also important is we couldn't be displaced because no matter how much they wanted it to be on top of the TV, it couldn't be. Because there weren't enough pixels on those screens. Mm. And there were many reasons why it became obvious. And so we started having a theme inside of Intel. We would talk on that. Andy and I would, you know, Andy would give a lot of interviews and speeches, and I would too. And we would, we would talk about the PC is the thing. That was, you know, the PC is it, actually. That was the, our, we had a marketing strategy, it was called the PC is it. You know, and everything that can, anything that becomes close to a PC will be sucked into the PC. Word processing will be sucked in, calculators will be sucked in, but even entertainment will be sucked in. Everything will be sucked into the black hole that was the PC connected, the connected PC. And we got, we we're pretty articulate about this, going around explaining this to everybody. And, uh, and one of the reasons that was important because we were trying to direct investment on this. We didn't want, you know, to see investment go off and try to do things that were in, you know, either venture investment or big investment in things that were not supporting of the strategy. And we did want the investments to go in support of the strategy. So we had to create the picture and get it out there. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And one more one more backtracking summation sort of thing. So when you go around to the cable companies and you say to them, hey, you can be in the in the information business, in the communication business, as well as the entertainment business, um, are they completely um, resistant to this idea at first? 
No, because remember, they were looking to do that on the set-top. They mm-hmm. wanted to do commerce. They knew about commerce because they owned the Home Shopping Network, mm-hmm. you know, and things like this. They knew about, you know, they, they could have told you what many of the applications were, you know, many they could not have, but they could imagine education. They didn't have any problem with the applications. They just had no idea what was what you needed to do to make it happen. And in your estimation, uh, it's Comcast that was maybe the the first, the the fastest uh, person to shift it to to this vision. Yes. Comcast really got it. And people like Barry Diller, who, you know, I uh, was, I I think I was maybe the uh, the first person to talk to Barry about the Internet. you know, he was involved with Comcast at the time, and he would really tell Brian, you know, this is going to be where all the shopping's going to happen. And, you know, Barry kind of got it. Of course, he went off to then do IAC and owns a lot of Internet properties. Uh, but, you know, Brian got it. And, uh, well, you know, there were other people. Rogers up in Canada got it. It wasn't that they didn't all get it, but they didn't know how fast it was going to happen. And, uh, and then, you know, they had... It was hard for them to give up control. They wanted everything to be proprietary. They wanted proprietary applications. They wanted proprietary modems. They didn't like the idea of somebody putting something on their network that they didn't own or rent. I had a big fights with John Malone about that. And, uh, you know, the idea that you could buy a modem in a retail store, no way. You know, we need to have our service guy put it in and whatever, you know. And so, you know, you had to get, demonstrate this stuff was working. And some people were more aggressive than others. You know, and sometimes it was international, you know, Korea, uh, Paris, Australia. You know, we were all over the world doing this. Yeah, I, I, I guess I'm, I, I don't know how to formulate a question around this. So I'll just say it's just fascinating to me that we can almost see that in the end, the cable, it, it, it's going to just be your Internet service provider. You know, you're going to get your TV through their Internet connection. And so it's just fast. You should be in the cable industry hall of fame as the the one guy on Mount Rushmore because you're the first guy that says to them, you're not in the uh, entertainment you know, business. You're in the information business. I, you know, they do have a kind of, they do more oral histories and so on. They re- I really should, you know, get do one with them because, you know, I have also, I have a lot of documents you know, that I've kept, you know, that, you know, document the history of this. Uh, so, uh, you know, it really, hey, one second, I'll just tell you the, 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 so one thing, uh, I think I have my desk, yeah. So, uh, I'm holding a pamphlet or, a, you know, a, 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 whatever it is, a brochure. It's called The Vision of the Future, A Vision of the Future, 1993, Convergence Conference in Bermuda, it's the cable industry conference and all the people are there and I'm speaking there and this is where I'm talking to every, all of them and explaining this future uh, you know both people are there Craig Mundy's there he's talking about the full service network Craig Mundy is I'm talking about the cable modems uh, 1993 anyway there we are <laughs> are you there I'm sorry I had had, had you on mute um, okay. Let's wrap up a little on uh, on Intel Ventures because also we should stipulate that Intel Ventures, as you said earlier, 
was perhaps one of the most successful, even though, even though you didn't want to call yourself a venture capitalist, was one of the most successful venture funds of, of all time by about 2000. I think you guys maybe had around 10 billion in value and had, had yeah. already liquidated three or 4 billion by the time, you know, around the time the bubble pops. So Intel did insanely well just with this venture arm. Yes, we did really well. There were some times we were very significant contrib- com- contributors to the profit of the company. Uh, I think that after I left, I left in 99, April 99. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I do know, uh, from a very reliable source that the, the value of the portfolio was before the bubble broke was 10 million, 10 billion. And I do believe we sold 3 billion on the way. And I think we started with you know, only 50 million, uh, but you know, some. But I think maybe there was some money added at some point. I can't remember. I don't. You know, fortunately, I'm very honorable. I didn't take any of that stuff with me. You know, I wish I did now, uh, because it's important for the history. But I just left all my files, and I don't have any of them. It's just what I guess. So uh, the yeah. So we were very successful, and well, why? You know, there are a lot of reasons why, and when we had, we knew a lot. I mean, we we knew what was going on, so that's you know an unfair advantage that uh, venture funds don't have. But we were also, uh, I think that Les and I, because we were really partners, we developed a really good process, and we really trained our people well, and we had scale, and uh, it you know we knew how to manage. Uh, so and the, and then I think we had a really good strategy. You know, and I wasn't doing all the investments because I went to focus most of the investments, I guess, were I were done by me. But uh, I wanted to focus more on this consumer space. So there were other things that we were doing. But whenever we did something, we really thought out the strategy. We had much more of a strategic approach than a venture capital firm would have. You know, they're they're in the hits business. And they're just investing, you know, when they think there's going to be hits. We're not. In the hits. We weren't in the hits business. We were, you know. We were looking at a much longer period of time as a, for our context. But we could also help companies incredibly. You know, we had so much airtime. You know, I could easily uh, mention a company in, uh, to a reporter of the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or CNN or whatever, and it would be covered. Um, if you still have the time, could we – I have notes that I've been taking as we've been talking, so – if you have time, could I circle back and hit a couple things that you yeah, mentioned? Yeah, I have to get off at uh, 9.45. Okay. Um, could you talk a little bit more about the, the Intel-Microsoft uh, relationship? I've, I've seen you say elsewhere that you sort of felt like um, maybe Intel was just following Bill Gates around because they thought he knew what he was doing. Uh, yeah, so I think that's true. I mean, I think that this was not a relationship of equals. Uh, it also had, by nature, a lot of conflict because Intel's business really depended on people buying new processors. And that meant new customers and people who had computers upgrading, which meant that you really wanted to have software that would take advantage of the new capabilities. But Microsoft's business became more and more an upgrade business. And so over time, the tension became really great between the two companies. Because Microsoft didn't want to add functionality that wasn't going to be useful to most of their customers. 
and they became a drag on Intel's business. Uh, and there was, and that's not, you know, one's good and one's bad. That's the nature of the, the fundamental difference between those two businesses. Uh, the, um, but also, you know, Bill was a computer guy, and he wasn't. And, and now these two companies are basically in the computer business. But one guy, who at the time and still is the richest man in the world, <laughs> you know, and has, you know, I, I, I'm going to say this and I'm going to regret saying this probably, but, but Andy can, you know, sometimes reminds me of Donald Trump because he's so aggressive. Mm-hmm. I don't mean he's Donald Trump. Uh, he's, I think he has a lot better values than Donald Trump. You mean Bill, he, Bill, mm-hmm. Bill is. I mean, Bill, Bill yes. can, you know, Andy's very aggressive too, but Bill could be so aggressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you just can't imagine standing, having somebody put their nose almost up into your nose and scream at you. Uh, but uh, that's what, I don't think Bill does that now, but that's who he was then. And, um, and so uh, Intel was, was terrified, terrified that, Intel, that Microsoft would do something to move off of the Intel platform. You know, Intel had just been given a gift that... DOS and then later Windows was tied to the Intel architecture, but easily they could move, just like Apple eventually moved to Intel. And they were terrified that that would happen because that was the engine of the profit. Between Intel and Microsoft, they were making 120% of the profit of the whole computer industry mm-hmm. well, because other people were losing money. So... Uh, I forget what you were asking, though. <laughs> the, the the relationship between the two companies, the, this Wintel um, thing that, that was dominant in the 90s and, and the early 2000s, and it was unequal in the sense that you felt like Microsoft was leading it and, and, and Intel was, was just trying to, to follow along as best it could? Well, I think that many times, you know, with the, that they were in uh, concert, you know, they wanted the companies wanted to do the same thing. I don't want to say that... It was all tension, mm-hmm. but uh, but if it came push to shove, and Microsoft wanted A and Intel wanted B, uh, it would be A, not B. Okay, one more story, and I promise I'll let you go. But you had mentioned Steve Case and and AOL and the internet, and I've done previous chapters on on this period of AOL. So, if there's a story there, like you said, I'd love to hear it. Well, there are many stories, but I, I think I don't know how interesting it is, but. You know, it took a while for Steve, AOL was a closed garden, you know, it was a closed system. And so with a lot of these things at that time, the world was still very proprietary uh, and trying. And so uh, first, Steve had to open up the system so you could send email back and forth between different systems. And that was a hard thing, but he did. And then the idea of actually basing it on the Internet, I think, took a while I can't remember, I mean, I remember lots of meetings and discussions and so on, but I can't really, to be honest, I can't say, uh, you know, he fought it or didn't. I think he, maybe he was right. He took his time. Uh, you know, he did a pretty good job. Uh, same thing was true with uh, Prodigy. And, uh, you know, because they were already in business. I think Prodigy moved more rapidly. Because Prodigy wasn't They were first, first, yeah. They were the first ones to open up to the Internet. Also, AOL had owned... A bunch of, you know, it had a lot, it owned a lot of uh, modems, the receiving modems and things like this. You know, it had a big investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've, you know, I've always admired Steve Case. 
Yeah, but when I first met him, I think there were only 18 people in the company. So I want the listeners to know um, that Avram has an excellent blog called Two Thirds Done, if you Google that. Um, a lot of what I've been asking him about uh, are things that he's already discussed on that blog. If you want to hear more about any of these aspects, uh, definitely go there. And, and just real quick, Avram, tell us, tell us what you're up to today. Well, first of all, <laughs> you know, I'm enjoying my life. I'm 70 years old. I still love technology. I'm helping a few early stage companies, probably doing more than I should in that. I have been uh, playing piano most of my life, jazz piano, and I'm spending a lot more time doing that now. I, I've been taking lessons for years and years, so it's nothing new. Um, and I'm doing some writing, and we travel. We live in in Sonoma, and we live in Tel Aviv, uh, and, you know, life is good. Well, Avram Miller, thank you for coming on the Internet History Podcast and um, remembering all that for us. Yeah, I wish I could remember names better, but... Uh, uh, so if anybody if forgot anybody or mispronounced their name, please forgive me. And thank you for the, your effort. I really appreciate the effort you're making for all of us. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening. Mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.